Well, hello again. Uh, before I get into today, today's word, I uh, want to just say we are beginning a new sermon series today through the book of Galatians. As you know, at Park, we study through entire books of the Bible, and we do that so that we allow the Bible to dictate the things we talk about and the things we preach about. Uh, as we start this new season through the book of Galatians, I want to recommend a book to you. Galatians, at the heart of the book of Galatians, is the gospel of grace, and one of the more impactful books I've ever read on grace, uh, and frankly, I just kind of reread a lot of it yesterday as I was preparing for today's message, is this book by a man named Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace. If you've never read this book, what I want to recommend to you is to pick a copy up and find someone in this church to go through it together. This would be a great book to, to get together with someone a few times and discuss the things that you read about in this book. I have a feeling that by studying this, we all will have a new and deeper and more profound understanding of grace. It's called What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. Pick it up. Don't read it alone. Read it with somebody else. Let me pray for our time as we dig into the Word. Heavenly Father, you are good. We believe that you have something planned for us today. As we dig into your word, we know you are powerful to change us, to bring conviction by your spirit, and to bring about change that needs to happen for us to become more like Christ and to become the people that you're calling us to be. So by the power of your spirit, I ask that you accomplish that great and supernatural work in us today. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Well, there are no shortages of problems that our world faces today. Uh, as we look around the news and we look at the situation both in our country and frankly around the globe, there are no uh, shortage of problems that we might say and pinpoint as some of the key sources of that problem. And I think one of the things that we can all agree on is that the knowledge that there are problems in the world and that we can continue to see some of the pr same problems arise indicates that there's something inside the human heart that longs for things to be better than they are. Isn't that true that there's something in the human heart that is dissatisfied with the brokenness we see around us and that internally longs for things to be fixed and ultimately healed? Every single human being experiences that. No matter what your faith background is, there's something inside the human heart that longs for things to be better. And I don't know about you, but if I were to ask you the question, what is the greatest problem in the world today, I suspect that across the room, and perhaps even across our city, we would get any number of answers. What's the greatest problem in the world today? Some of you might look at our politicians. You might say it's the politicians. They're the ones that are the problems. They're the ones that are causing the issues. Some of you might look at Hollywood and, and pop media, pop culture, and say it's cultures, it's uh, Hollywood's problem, and it's the movies and the video games they're putting out. Some of you might look at the moral revolution that's taken place in the last 15 years and say it's the decline of morality. That's the issue. That is what is wrong with our world today. Some of you might look at technology Say, so you know what? Technology has drastically shifted everything that was about our culture, and technology is the problem with our world today. Many years ago, there was a man named G.K. Chesterton. If ever you have a chance to read anything G.K. Chesterton ever wrote, I highly suggest you do so. G.K. Chesterton responded to an article that was written in his local paper at the time, and the paper posted one big article, and all it said was this, what do you think is the biggest problem with the world today? Let me put up to you the full letter that he wrote back to them. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, yours, G.K. Chesterton. 
For some of you in this room today, I suspect that Chesterton's response is not one that you would automatically go to when thinking about that. Even as I was going through the various issues and problems, in your mind, were you leaning towards one of them? In your mind, was there a default, a default position that was in alignment with G.K. Chesterton's response? Or was this idea that our heart, our wickedness is part of the problem, in fact, the problem with the world today, was that foreign to the default way that you think? You see, we have this great problem and exists in and outside of the church that we tend to see ourselves as morally superior to the people around us. The problem is that this kind of thinking of moral superiority is completely and fundamentally opposed to the gospel of grace that we read about in the Bible. No one, not anyone, is ever allowed to stand on a moral high ground and say that they are morally superior to anybody else. The first step in approaching Jesus, in fact, is discovering the beauty of God and and, and discovering that God invites you in humility to come to Jesus in your weakness and your vulnerability, not your strength and your moral high ground. Jesus invites you to get on your knees in confession, not to stand on top of a mountain and lord your morality over somebody else. You see, evil doesn't just live out there. Evil begins in here. And these two views of how we look at the world can be contrasted with each other. On the one side, we have what we might call a culture of moral performance and achievement. This is the paradigm where we see ourselves as morally superior and that we are the, we are the solution to the world if people would just think, act, and behave like us. On the other side is the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is an entirely different paradigm where it begins in weakness on your knees, confessing that the problems with the world begin with the missteps of our heart. And, and, and which paradigm we choose to live in will totally redefine how we think about ourselves, how we relate to other people, and how we relate to God. In, in short, it'll change everything about you. If you're saturated in grace, it'll change how you see yourself. It'll change how you see other people and how you relate to God. If you live under the gospel of grace, you have this beautiful opportunity to lay aside the perpetual rat race of trying to live up to a standard that you can never live up to. The The paradigm of moral achievement is this constant pursuit of saying, if I could just get my life a little more together, maybe one day I'll have enough spirituality in my life and I just have to keep laboring towards that day. The gospel of grace sets us free from that pursuit. It allows us to never work for the love of God, never labor thinking if only we could just get to a place to deserve God's love, to be at a spiritual high point. Rather, it says everything we do is not for the love of God, but from the love of God. God loves us as much as he ever can because of what Christ has done. Today, as we begin this new sermon series through this New Testament book called Galatians, at the very center of this book is the gospel of grace. Paul strives throughout this entire book to nail home and to make sure that we understand with clarity, with detail, all the implications of the gospel of grace. And the main thing he is opposing in this book is the ungospel of moral performance and achievement. 
He's going to just hit us over the head and say, if you are still living as a Christian under the ungospel of moral performance and achievement and of standing on a moral high ground over other people, you've missed grace and you've abandoned God. He says, do not ever abandon the gospel of grace. Now with that, let's dig into this book of Galatians. Today we're going to look at the first nine verses. So if you've got a Bible, I think on your house Bibles is page 972. If you're looking on your phones or your iPads, it's going to be uh, kind of in the first, towards the end of the first third of the New Testament, page 972. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 begin this way. This is his introduction. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now let's pause right there and try to get a sense for what are these first five verses. This is Paul, the writer's introduction to the entire book. And just in those five verses, we get a sense of framework for trying to understand what is this book? What, what is this thing we call Galatians? Well, we learned three kind of key things just from those five verses. Number one, this was a letter. Here's what I mean by that. This book that we find in the middle of our New Testament originally was a handwritten letter that was written from one person who identifies himself as Paul to a series of churches that were in Galatia. This letter would have been hand-delivered, and it would have been spread out across the churches in Galatia. And, and our greatest scholars kind of feel and believe, based on the things we see in the book, that it was written around the year A.D. 50 to A.D. 55. It's one of the earliest New Testament books. That places it about 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. What's really important for that is from a defense of the gospel standpoint, this book was written during the lifetime of most of the disciples who were alive during Jesus' life. Those who walked with Jesus, those who talked with Jesus, those who knew all about the resurrection and saw the risen Jesus, they were some of the recipients of this letter. This reminds us of the validity of the New Testament Secondly, we get a sense of who wrote it. His name was Paul. Now, if you're new to the Bible, Paul is one of the central figures in the New Testament. He wrote a good chunk of the entire New Testament, many of the letters that we find in the New Testament. And next week, Paul's actually kind of going to give us his full biography. And so I'm going to save his whole biography for next week because it's part of his entire story. But, but what you need to know is that Paul planted most of the churches in Galatia. Paul was an early missionary who traveled around Galatia and planted house churches all throughout the region and raised up leadership in each of these churches. And, and a lot of the letters he wrote were sent back from him. Think of him as the founding pastor of the church, who since founding the, who since founding the church had moved on and was now doing other work elsewhere, and then was writing back to that early church he founded these letters of encouragement and instruction to make sure that they didn't veer off course from where they originally set out. The third thing we know is that it was written to the churches in Galatia. That's what he says at the end of verse 2, to the churches in Galatia. Now let me put a map up for you to kind of show you where Galatia is in modern day. That whole region in Turkey, right about where that circle is, is what was known as Galatia. 
Our senior pastor over All Park Community Church just spent six weeks in Galatia, and he's been sharing a lot of good, juicy details about this book and about the culture in that area as we prepared for this sermon series. But he's writing to the churches in Galatia. What that means is that there were house churches that were spread out across this entire region, meeting in homes, and they all had their own eldership and leadership and own way of doing things. And, and Paul would have written this letter, it would have been hand-delivered to one of the churches, and then over a series of years spread out and shared among all the churches that were meeting. And, and each of the churches would have read this letter aloud in its entirety to the congregation and then instructed them on all the details that were written inside of it. This letter originally was designed to be read aloud, kind of like I just did when I read verses 1 to 5 aloud. Someone would have stood up in front of the congregation and read the whole thing from start to finish all the way through. Now, one of the things we notice in the start of this is that Paul does a really good job of giving his credentials, doesn't he? Listen, Paul, verse 1, an apostle, and then out of the gate he gets fiery. Not from man, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul, right out of the gate, defends his authority as an apostle. He says, everything I write, this is not my ideas. This is not Paul trying to show you how smart he is. This is not Paul trying to make a buck by being a famous preacher. This is someone who is speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ himself, who commissioned Paul to do the work that he had set out to do to plant the churches and to write this letter to them. So when we read this, Paul, right out of the gate, says, these are not my own words. These are the words of Jesus Christ who sent me. I speak as an apostle on Jesus' behalf. What that means is that anybody who was perhaps trying to undermine Paul's authority, anyone who perhaps was speaking a different message in the churches of Galatia, they, they couldn't appeal any higher, could they? At, at the end of the day, Jesus Christ is as high as you go when you make your appeal in the appellate court of God's courthouse, right? And Paul right now is making his appeal as high as it can go. I come on behalf of Jesus Christ. And right there in verses 3 to 5, we're going to dig into those a little bit later today at the end of the message. But right there in verses 3 to 5, he lays out the gospel in clarity. He roots us and founds us and kind of anchors us in the gospel of grace. He says, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for your sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He anchors us there because everything he's going to talk about in the entire book of Galatians begins and ends right there in that message. Jesus Christ given for us to deliver us from our sins. The, the opening intro video that we showed today showed a person running around a racetrack. And I think that's a fitting visual for us to think about the overall message of Galatians. Paul wants us to stay on course. Don't veer out of the lane. Don't listen to anything that gets you off course from the gospel of grace. It begins here, it ends here. You run this race, this marathon of life in the lane of the gospel of grace and anyone that tells you to switch lanes, to get over into another course or to begin listening to another sense of spirituality, do not listen. Get back in the lane of the gospel of grace. Paul anchors us right there. Then Paul has an emphatic plea. These verses are important for us. Verse 6, I am astonished. Hear those words. 
Those are the words in our Bible study this week as we studied this passage. Someone said, it sounds like he's an angry dad. And that's exactly what he is right here. He's looking down at his, his children in the faith. He's saying, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. In other words, I'm astonished that you got out of the lane of the gospel of grace. Not that there is another one, but, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of grace. And listen to this. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, that's the gospel of grace, let him be accursed. Paul introduces us to the major problem that was happening and the reason for him writing this letter. Apparently, there were some people within the Galatian church who were going around from church to church and they were trying to distort and undermine the gospel of grace. They were looking at the Galatian Christians and saying, hey, I know you heard this lane. I know Paul told you that's where you're supposed to be, but let me tell you something. He was just a little off. If you will just shift that gospel of grace just a little bit and come over here into this lane, this is what real spirituality looks like. This is how you experience the fullness of the blessings of God. Just abandon grace a little bit. And they were distorting the gospel of grace. And what they were doing is they were trying to undermine Paul's authority. They were trying to say, hey, who's Paul anyways? He's not even here. Where is he? He's not your pastor anymore. Where are the new pastors in town? Listen to this new gospel we're saying. And that's why Paul so early on came out and said, whoa, 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 whoa. I come from Jesus Christ. No one set me up. Jesus set me up to deliver this message. Now, what was this distortion of the gospel? I'm going to share a little bit of a technical thing for you so you understand the original issue. But in this technicality, it's so important that we understand it because this technicality defines everything Paul is saying in this book of Galatians. There was a group of people in the Galatian church which over history have been called the Judaizers. The Judaizers. Now, what the Judaizers were saying was this. They were saying, hey, look, we... We, the Jewish people from whom Christianity was birthed out of, the Jewish people are really the ones who have the heaviest blessing. And all you people who come to Jesus outside of Judaism, that's, I'm guessing, 99 if not 100% of the people in this room, came to Jesus from outside of Judaism. They were saying, look, you have experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. That's so good. I love that. But if you really want to experience the fullness of God's blessings you still have to practice some of the laws in the Old Testament. You still have to get circumcised. That was one of the biggest laws in the Old Testament. You still have to celebrate some of the original festivals. And if you fail to do those things, you will not experience the fullness of God's blessings. It's such a subtle little shift, isn't it? These Judaizers weren't throwing out some of the things that we would say were the nuts and bolts of the gospel, were they? They weren't throwing out the divinity of Jesus Christ. They weren't throwing out the Trinity. They weren't throwing out Jesus Christ sacrificed on the cross for our sins. Some of the major doctrines, it seems like they weren't throwing out. What they were doing was adding to the gospel of grace and saying, you can't have the fullness of the blessing of God unless you live up to a certain moral high ground. Just, just strive for that. Because if you keep working hard enough, You'll just get some more blessings of God and more blessings of God. 
And they were going back to a gospel of moral performance. They were saying grace is good, but it's not enough. You need to do a little bit more to receive the love of God. And Paul says, I am astonished that you would abandon the gospel of grace and listen to those fools who are trying to get you to live up to moral achievement. Don't you remember how beautiful the gospel of grace is? And Paul's actually angry. He's angry not just at the people who are teaching and distorting the gospel, but he's actually angry at his church that they would listen to those people in the first place. He's angry at both of them. And listen to this language he says. It's so fascinating. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. For Paul to abandon the gospel of grace, that's not just to have your spirituality out of whack, that's to abandon the Father. It was God who had called them. You start adding things into the gospel of grace, you start believing that you get the blessings of God based on your moral performance, and then you start holding other people accountable to being a morally superior person, you have abandoned God. Hear those words. I wonder how much we brought the Judaizing problem into the church today. To abandon grace is to abandon God. There is no middle ground. That there's no kind of gray area where we can tiptoe and dance between grace and every other religion of the world. It's either Jesus and what he taught or it's nothing. You can't stand in the middle and try to balance both of these things. Every other religion in the world teaches moral achievement and performance. Jesus alone stands and teaches the gospel of grace. And you are either standing fully in grace or you are standing fully in not grace. And Paul tells us exactly where that goes in verse 9. And then Paul gets really clear here. He says, if anybody, even an angel of light, hear that, even if an angel appears to you and tells you the gospel of grace is not quite right, don't listen to him. He even puts himself underneath that authority. He says, if we, if I in the future change my concept of how to have the blessings of God and I start trying to teach to you moral performance, don't listen to me. It's interesting over history how many angels have appeared to people and started massive movements that their main, their main problem with the gospel of grace was that they were saying you had to do something to achieve more moral superiority. Islam was founded that way. An angel appeared to Muhammad. And what was the angel's message? Christianity got it wrong. The gospel of grace is not enough. There's more you have to do to earn God's approval. Mormonism was founded that way. Joseph Smith Walking through the woods in America one day, an angel appears to him. What does the angel say? Christianity got it wrong. There's more you have to do to get God's blessing in your life. Paul writes this because he knew that this was spiritual warfare and that this is how big a deal it was. That literally Satan and his army would attempt everything under the sun to try to get you to stray from the lane of the gospel of grace. Paul says, anchor yourself. Root yourself. Don't let anybody, even Paul, tell you anything other than the gospel of grace. And then hear these words, verses 8 and 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Pardon my language, but what he says in a modern translation, he's saying let them go to hell. 
He says, let them be damned. Because that concept of moral achievement is rooted in hell. And if that is what we are teaching, then that's exactly where they're going to end up. Because moral achievement can never get you God's blessings. And, and Paul, hear his language here. Galatians has a different tone than almost every book in the New Testament. There is this angry, almost just fervent, zealous, passionate plea from Pastor Paul to his beloved church saying, please, I'm so astonished. Get back in the lane that I labored over you for years. Go back to the gospel of grace. Don't ever abandon grace. Now, let me see if I can help us fast forward from 50 AD and the problem of the Judaizers to 2018 AD and how we bring that problem into the modern day church. The reality of grace, the fundamental message that the church should be teaching, not, not the message that a lot of people think the church is teaching of moral superiority, but the actual message of grace, the real message of Jesus Christ, that you can't earn God's love, it's a free gift because of what Christ has done on the cross on your behalf. That message is fundamentally scandalous to our modern ears. It is offensive to our modern ears. Most people, if you try to tell them that, will be offended by the message we carry, the message of grace. And one of the reasons for that is we learn from a very young age that you get what you deserve. How many little parables and proverbs have we learned growing up that teach us you get what you deserve? The early bird gets the worm. Work hard. Get your act together. We've learned from a very young age and been trained to see all the world, to see everyone around us, and to see ourselves in a ladder of moral achievement and performance. And if we're very honest with ourselves, even as Christians, sometimes we still see the world that way. And we judge people. And we start to see ourselves as the morally superior ones, and we scratch our heads at other people who don't have their lives quite together as we do. Oh, why can't they just get their act together? And we fundamentally miss the gospel of grace. Tim Keller has done some wonder, wonderful work on this, and some of these examples I'm going to share are straight out of his mouth, but they are so helpful for us to see how we bring the problem of Judaizing into the church in our modern day. And this is a problem not just in the church, but also outside of the church. Let me give you three examples. Let's take, for example, a, a liberal humanitarian. Someone who does not believe in God, does not believe in Jesus Christ, but has traveled the world and given their life to help people in need. I've been a missionary overseas. I lived in Thailand. I worked among some of the slums. Some of the people that were doing the greatest and most heartfelt work were atheists who were also living in the slums who were humanitarians. And they're out there doing their life. They've given up so much. They're bringing water to places where there is no water. They're trying to raise money to get food to people who are starving overseas. No sense of God in their life, but they just feel this burden to help people. And when this liberal humanitarian goes to bed at night or they come back here to try to get stuff, they, they begin to get angry. Why can't people see the world I, the way I see it? Why do they have so much wealth over here and they don't share? If only people would start seeing the world the way I see it, then the world would be a better place. If only people would begin behaving like me, because me and my view of the world, me and my actions and how I'm living, that's the solution. And this person begins looking down their nose at other people who don't quite have the same sense of the world or the world's problems as they do. 
And as soon as that person does that, they're living underneath a paradigm of moral superiority and moral achievement. They have no concept of the gospel of grace. Let's take another example. Perhaps you take the religious person, the person who comes to church every week or the person who goes to their synagogue or their mosque or their temple every week, and they tithe. They're regularly giving, and they do all the religious things that people of some kind of faith ought to be doing. On the outside, they're living some kind of moral life. They go to bed at night, and when they think about the issues, and when they read the news, and when they talk to their friends, what they're beginning to think is, man, if they are the problem. If, if that person over there would just get their act together, if they would just behave a little bit more like me, the world would be a whole better place. Why can't they just get out of debt? Why can't they just get their act together? Why can't they just get a job? That's the problem right over here. We're the solution. And you see how moral superiority just sneaks into the religious person's life? You begin to think, I'm the one. I got my act together. I'm the one who's attained something morally. They just need to be a little bit more like me. Or perhaps a third example, you just take the secular worker, the good old-fashioned American worker who works hard every day, who goes home and just says, you know what, those people are so lazy out there. If they could just be a little more hardworking like me, because hard work, I'm the solution. I'm the morally superior one. And can you hear it? Can you hear moral superiority sneaking into each of those people's lives? In each of those examples, those people are fundamentally believing they are the solution to the world. They are the ones who stand on the moral high ground, and those people out there just need to be a little bit more like them. If I can just confess to you As I read this book this week, I have been struck deeply, personally, at how much of my life and my thought is lived underneath Judaism. Not the Jewish faith, the Judaizing problem. I have been convicted that so much of my thinking is looking down my nose at other people and thinking, man, I've got something together. I've attained some kind of spiritual maturity. I look back on my friends from years past. I see where their lives are at right now. And I just think, oh, man, get your life together, man. What are we, you know, we're in our mid-30s now. When are you going to do it? Moral superiority. I'm abandoning the gospel of grace. Paul says the second you start letting that define you, moral superiority, it's so fundamentally opposed to the gospel of grace. We've missed it and you've abandoned God altogether. Paul brings us right back. He says, do not let moral performance become the thing which you see yourself, those around you, and your relationship to God. Because here's the reality. Moral performance is not good news. That is awful news. If the way the world is structured is off of moral performance, if that's what God wants for us, that's not gospel. Gospel means good news. That's an ungospel because the reality is that none of us will ever live up. Every one of us will always be wondering, have I done enough? Did I give enough? Did I serve enough? We get over every single hurdle of our faith and then we're still sitting there going, I wonder if God's pleased with me now. I wonder if God's pleased with me now. And it's exhausting. If any of you have ever tried to do that, If any of you have ever thought, man, God would just be pleased with me if I could just get over this sin, and you fall back into that same pattern of sin for years, isn't it exhausting to wonder if God's pleased with you? That is not good news. The the paradigm of moral superiority and achievement, that's an ungospel. That's horrible news. But, But Paul anchors us 
And he looks at a people who are beginning to realize. Keep in mind, he says, that you are beginning to believe these things. They're on their way of transitioning into a different gospel. And he says, come back to the anchor of grace. Look at how he defines grace. Grace begins with a posture of weakness and vulnerability. Grace begins and ends with a weakness and a posture of personal weakness and vulnerability before God and before others. Grace begins and ends with removing any moral high ground and saying there's nothing I can do to earn anyone's favor because I have nothing good to bring in this on my own. It's all Jesus. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Grace to you, peace from God our Father. Here's the gospel and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That is the gospel of grace, and that is what Paul says, do not stray from. Let's walk right through it, bit by bit. Jesus Christ, let's start with him. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came in weakness, didn't he? Here's the king of the universe. Here's the one who sustains the universe by the word of his power, has all authority, who beckons legions of angels at a snap of his finger, and they move on his behalf and go wherever he says to go. And yet he was born into poverty, wasn't he? Laid in a manger? That's a feeding trough. How many of you want to lay your newborn baby in a feeding trough? He was born into poverty. He lived in poverty. He was hunted. He was persecuted. He was abandoned. And constantly, what we find with Jesus Christ is that he was associating with all the people who everyone else would say they have no moral high ground. He spent time with the prostitutes. He spent time with the tax collectors. One of his closest disciples was a zealot. You know what a zealot is? That's someone who kills people for political gain. Jesus Christ walked in such a way that he never used, even though he had moral high ground, he was the Lord. He is the one unstained from all sin. He is the only one who's ever lived a perfect, righteous life, and yet he associated and befriended all of those who everyone else said, they're the ones in the moral low ground. And then he walked right in with them. He said, in weakness, I associate with you. This is what Christianity looks like. It begins with throwing out the door any moral superiority you might feel. Jesus led by weakness like a lamb to the slaughter. And then it says that he came for our sins. Right here in those words, hear that, for our sins. Look at the little words, they're so important. Why did Jesus come? For our sins. Right there in those three words, the ungospel of moral performance is completely shattered. You see, Scripture binds everybody who has ever lived underneath the reality of sin. And the problem begins and ends right there. That no matter who you are, no matter what your background, every single one of us have a fundamental problem, as it is, between us and God and between us and others. We are sinners. And we're sinful. The actions we do that are sinful, both our thoughts and our deeds... The reason we do those things is because there's something wrong fundamentally with our heart, and we're sinners. We sin because we're sinners, not the other way around. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's who we're born into, and only when we begin from that starting place 
Can we begin to even comprehend the gospel of grace? If you've never wrestled through the reality of your own sin and never actually gotten to a place like G.K. Chesterton where you said in reality, not just because the pastor said, but you looked at your life, looked at your sin, and said, right here, me, I'm the problem. It's my sin. It's my wicked thoughts. You haven't understood the gospel of grace yet. The gospel of grace has to start with weakness, and everybody falls under the same condition of spiritual sickness and sin. No one is exempt. What this means is that me and the murderer in jail, neither of us have the moral high ground. Both of us have a heart issue. I can't look to him and think, man, why'd you make those choices? Because I've got the same heart condition he does. We both stand sick before the Lord and we both are in need of a rescuer. The same amount, neither of us more or less than the other person. That's why Jesus spent so much time with tax collectors and prostitutes. That's why he was so opposed to everyone who was trying to create a moral superiority complex. Jesus completely equalized the playing field among each other. So nobody, according to the gospel, can stand on a moral high ground. Look down your nose at someone else and say, why don't you just get it together? No, no one can get it together. We're all trapped by sin. And then he says he delivered us. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us. That word means to rescue. He rescued us from a position of being unable to rescue ourselves. Did you know you were in a position that needed rescuing? You were spiritually drowning. And had God left you on your own, your destiny would have been accursed. You would have been separated from God in hell forever because of your sinful condition. The wages of sin is death, separation from God. No one can stand before a holy, just God. A God who is so perfect, so just, so good that he cannot stand in the presence of sin and brokenness and wickedness and each of us carrying that sin before God. God says the wages of sin is death, but Jesus Christ rescued us from that death. When he stood on a cross and bore and carried all of the weight and the consequences of our sin on his shoulders, his blood literally being shed on your behalf. Here's what that means. Jesus Christ bore hell in your place. He was accursed so that you don't have to be. Paul says, why in the world would you abandon that gospel? What are you thinking? I'm astonished that here you are trapped in need of rescue. Someone delivered you out of that and rescued you, and you're jumping back into the pool and drowning again? What are you thinking, church? Jesus Christ is the only one who can rescue you from this condition that we're in. This is why grace is so wildly scandalous. Because it levels the playing field between us and everyone else around us and says we cannot earn God's love. There's nothing we can do. We're not able to have a moral high ground. We're not able to do enough. Even after receiving Jesus Christ, any sense of goodness that comes into our life, it's not because we attained it. It's because Jesus poured his blessings into our life. We constantly maintain a position of moral neutrality between us and everybody else and say, on our own, we're sinful in need of grace and look at what Jesus Christ has done. And then we associate with everyone who Jesus is associated with. This is why when you talk to someone and you just say, man, that person's saturated with grace, you know who they spend a lot of time with? All the people in this life who everyone says are morally inferior. You find them spending time over a Cook County prison. You find them spending time on the sides of the city where people oftentimes don't go who try to hold a moral high ground because they've begun to understand the gospel of grace. We are all in need of rescue. Grace is free. 
It's undeserved. It's unchanging. It's relentless. It's awesome. It's beautiful. It's earth-shaking. It's shackle-breaking. It's justice-filling. It's history-changing. It's heart-pounding. It's the love of God poured out in full upon people who do not deserve it. Don't ever abandon grace. That's what Paul says. Don't ever abandon it. What do we do with this this morning as we begin this gospel of Galatians? This gospel of grace. I want to encourage you to saturate your life with grace. That's the simple application of this. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. I want you to wake up in the morning this entire semester all the way through when we're done with this book of Galatians and the first thing you think about is, man, I am a sinner who has received incredible grace in my life. And the last thing you think about before you go to bed is, man, I am a sinner who has received incredible grace in my life and begin to let that shape the way you see yourself, the way you see others, and the way you relate to God. Because until we have understood that, We're allowing the lie of the Judaizer to infiltrate the church. And like Paul said, don't ever, ever, ever abandon grace. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for the gospel of grace. God, none of us can ever do anything to earn your favor. None of us ever have a leg to stand on when it comes to our moral superiority. We are all trapped underneath sin in need of a savior. God, I pray for those in this room this morning that that have never understood the gospel of grace, that have never been told that there is a Savior that loves them and died for them on a cross to rescue them from a position of eternal damnation and separation from God from this present evil age to give them life now and in eternity and that he is good, that he is beautiful. His name is Jesus Christ. God, I pray for those who need to believe that truth right now that they would do it now that the Spirit would move in power now, and God, that we would be a church that never abandons the gospel of grace. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.